My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's Sustainability Editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shadow. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. (laughs) Welcome to our 60th episode. Can you believe it? (laughs) I'm a proud mama. If you enjoyed the last few shows with Ellen MacArthur and William McDonough, you're going to love this one too, especially if you're a designer, student or educator, or if you work in fashion sustainability or indeed want to. You're going to meet the rock star of sustainable fashion education, Dillis Williams. Now, she's got a big anniversary too this week as her baby, the Centre for Sustainable Fashion, turns 10 Now, that is the Research Centre at the University of the Arts London, based at the London College of Fashion, that works with brands and academics and the industry broadly to try to shape it into a more sustainable version of itself. Now, to celebrate their 10 years, they're hosting a conference with some fab speakers. It's actually amazing. It's like Catherine Hamlet and our mate Ursula de Castro. I was really hoping to be going along. But as you might know, if you follow me on social media, I'm currently in the middle of my book tour for Rise and Resist, How to Change the World. And I'm very excited that our European and American listeners can now get hold of it from Book Depository and they've got free delivery worldwide. We will share a link in the show notes. Now, if you too have to miss out on the conference fun, never fear. You're going to learn a whole lot from Dillis on this podcast. Also, though, if you want more, they run these fantastic online sustainable fashion courses that are open to all, and we'll share a link for those too. But this conversation is really thought-provoking. It's all about how we can redesign the current fashion system to make it work in a more sustainable way. We discuss, of course, the role of the designer, and Dillis used to be a designer herself. She headed up women's wear for Catherine Hamnett. We talk also, though, about the role of fashion in all of our lives and how commerce fits in with that. We discuss the importance of being critical thinkers and fashion rebels. 
We touch on DIY and actually Margaret Thatcher and the clash. So Dillis was a product of that kind of 80s, 90s rebel fashion scene where fashion really became quite political. And I think we're there again today, to be honest. We also talk about the big stuff, continuing the conversation that's been running through this series of the podcast about how we stand with nature and what our obligations are to it. These are big ideas that really define our struggle for sustainability. It's all in a day's work for Dillis Williams. Talking of work, I spend a lot of hours, very happily, of course, making this podcast, but I mean, it takes a long time. If I charged out my time to myself at what it's worth, I'd be in some serious debt. I don't have a team. I do all the research myself. And you look, I absolutely love making this show for you. But recently I've been thinking, how sustainable is this? I mean, it's a show about sustainability. I'm not sure my business plan is particularly sustainable, I have to say. Now, a big, big thank you to my patron supporters and to the brands with purpose who've come on board to present particular episodes. I am so grateful. Without you guys, I wouldn't be able to continue. But I need a bigger idea if I'm going to make this work for series three. So, dear listener, I wondered, what if I crowdfunded series three? Do you think that would work? Would you help me? Would you come on board? Please do drop me a line and let me know your thoughts on that. You can find me as usual on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press, but I'd love to hear your feedback. Oh, and don't forget to hit subscribe and keep sharing your reviews and ratings on iTunes. Hello. Hello. Hi, Claire. (laughs) We're in your office. Which is really, to me, quite radically, for those who don't know where this establishment is, right in Oxford Street, in the strip that all the big stores are on, two seconds from Selfridges, a few more seconds from H&M and Topshop down the road. Yes, people wonder why we set up Centre for Sustainable Fashion and then they see where we are and, and it's very clear and quick to understand we're right in the heart of some of the problems, but also actually it's, you know, it's the centre of London. There's loads of amazing people, diverse people from different places and it's also why we see it as an amazing opportunity to kind of think differently. Dillis, what are you wearing? Oh, what am I wearing? Oh, I'm wearing the simplest skirt that's actually also one of my favourite pieces. It's, it's a piece of cotton poplin that has got very minimal design, but actually it's also like nothing else. I, I've never seen anybody in a skirt quite like this. So, yes, for the podcast listeners, it's a very simple, plain poplin white skirt and a, a navy jumper. And I am a bit of a navy and white girl. This must be something about uniforms. My, my jumper's John Smedley. Ah, John, John Smedley. Smedley. My mum used to have a shop in Ilkley and she used to sell oh, really? John Smedley. It's the most beautiful quality. Yeah, yeah. Mm. When I was at Catherine Hamnett, we used to uh, do a lot of our fine knitwear with John Smedley. Did you? Yes. The reason I asked you what you were wearing is because I think it's interesting to ask in this context if you wear your values. Yeah, we all do, whether we are explicitly or implicitly. You know, what we wear says something about us. It says something about the time we live in. It says something about where we're from, et cetera, et cetera, the things that that resonate for us. So, yeah, whatever we're wearing, whether it's consciously or not, we are wearing our values. When I was stalking you by reading ancient articles that you had contributed to or been interviewed for online, there was a piece from like 2008 or something where it was like, what I'm wearing in one of the papers. And you said, I'm a Kugel's woman. Oh, <laughs> yeah, been I one forever. Oh my goodness, gosh, I've revealed myself far too much, haven't I? <laughs> yeah, you said, and, and maybe, I can't, yeah, it was something like, I can't remember the exact words, but that and fisherman jumpers. Yep. Yes, because those are navies here as well. <laughs> Even though you work in fashion, 
not radical trends that are going to change tomorrow. Yeah, and you know, we do change what we wear all the time. And fashion's always been about change, but it hasn't always been about chucking something away. So yeah, I happen to have had these pieces for a really long time, but I will wear them in different ways with different things. You know, The Centre for Sustainable Fashion, what is it? What does it do? It's a group of people who come from various different backgrounds and come together with a shared intention around kind of doing good things for fashion, in fashion and through fashion. Because fashion actually represents wider cultures than its own, beyond its own industry. So we're a set of researchers, designers, tutors, industry practitioners. And, and what we do is we find ways to explore um, fashion and sustainability as industry practice as education practice and also as research. So it's a new discipline. It didn't used to be in the curriculum. Fashion design for sustainability is now starting to be recognised as an area of, of, of education. Not everywhere. Not everywhere. No, absolutely not everywhere. In fact, it, we set up a master's course in 2008 when we set up the centre and it was the first, as far as I know, MA in fashion and the environment and there are literally two or three other courses around the world still. And people did ask me at the time, why are you starting mm. one course? Shouldn't you be doing something in all courses? And the philosophy for us has been really that you've got to dig in deep because for some people, they want to dive straight in. They want to start by thinking about sustainability and apply it to fashion which is what that course is about. But there's also going to be a whole lot of other people who are thinking about different elements of fashion in relation to sustainability. So you've got to have that broad as well as deep approach. What was the context like in 2008? Because that's quite a long time ago in this conversation. Can you tell us about some of the challenges or resistances or enthusiasms that you met when you brought this to the table? Yeah. Well, I'd been working as a designer. I worked at Catherine Hamnett. And in fact... The best person ever. Yes. I interviewed her for my book, Shameless Book Plug. Because she's a rock star, actually. She totally is. I mean, working with Catherine, and I still speak to her very regularly, was, for me, a complete transformation actually in in my thinking as a designer so yeah I trained as the fashion designer like any other and had been working through ideas when I went to work with Catherine and uh, headed up her women's wear collection you know she started to question everything about what we were doing we were all questioning what we were doing and I also realized the power of design from a political perspective you know you can say things to people in a far more direct way than you can do on other platforms the obviously iconic slogan t-shirts that Catherine Hamlet started doing in the 80s. I mean, yeah. if listeners aren't fully aware of what Catherine does, which maybe you're not because she rejected fashion in the 90s when it wasn't modern enough for her yeah. and went into, I mean, I'm going to say went into politics, but not into parliament, <laughs> but went into campaigning. Yeah. But if you think about those Choose Life t-shirts from the Wham videos, they were Catherine Hamlet's. Stop acid rain now, all that. What, so Education, what not missiles. Mom? Yeah. From the 80s, this, the idea of being really explicit about messages on your T-shirt. She uh, invented was, it. Absolutely. In the fashion absolutely. context. Yeah, yeah. But also equally the idea of making decisions as a designer about what you will and won't use. One of the reasons why the business actually shifted a lot was starting to ask questions about the manufacturer of things, where things are from, who was involved in making them. And we had to really shrink the business because we had to say, you know what, we're no longer going, you know, sanction China at one point because it was decided that, you know, we all sat down and, and looked at the human rights issues and thought, 
is this something that we want to be part of? On the one hand, you want to help people, and, and certainly we don't, you know, we, we talk about boycotting rather than boycotting, but sometimes as a designer, you do have to just kind of make the decisions that are right for you. And if you decide, right, and we're not going to use any cotton unless it's organic, you can't, you suddenly, you do have to change your business. And then at the time, she also told me this story that, and I mean, we can share some links, it's widely available, but that cotton, organic cotton was not available to no. her in the 90s when she was trying to change her supply chain. We went to Premier Vision, which is a big fabric show, and we were asking suppliers for organic cotton. They were laughing at us. They were saying, cotton is it's from nature. It's, it's, it is organic. It's from nature. And it's like, uh, excuse me? <laughs> so yeah, we had real resistance. From working with Catherine, I was invited in to speak to students and realised uh, quite quickly that students were really keen to find out about the issues of, of fashion and nature, and yet there was nothing in their curriculum that really addressed the decisions they were making as designers. So the idea of Centre Sustainable Fashion came by accident. I, you know, I came in here and thought, this is something that is incredibly powerful to change education. You change education... As Mandela said, you know, it's the most powerful change in the world. So, But there was an appetite for it that you noted in students. How about in your colleagues or your peers outside of pioneers like Catherine? Well, I Were think they like, you're nuts, what are you talking about? <laughs> Some, yeah, it, w- it was a bit Marmite. <laughs> for, sorry, for, you, for your listeners that are not from the UK, Marmite is something you either love or hate. The Vegemite is what we have. Aha, <laughs> uh-huh, okay. It's yeah. the same. Same. <laughs> So I came in and realised that the, some of the things I was talking about had a huge resonance for students. I also had some real support from some journalists. So Lucy, Which ones? Lucy Siegel. Of course. So Lucy uh, was asking some really uh, strong questions about what was happening in education, about what was Great. happening in industry. And so there were a number of people, and there were organisations like Labour Behind the Label, who had got uh, had set up something called Fashioning and Ethical Industry that was specifically Fashioning Fashioning and Ethical Industry. Okay, I haven't F-E-I. actually read about that. It's not around at the mo- anymore, um, but they set up a big campaign in about two thousand and seven, two thousand eight, to try and encourage students to think about the labour issues in the fashion supply chain. So I had yeah NGOs like that, journalists, students all kind of supporting me so we yeah we were a little kind of group of people talking about these ideas and then a new head of college came in here Frances Corner and she came in with uh, kind of questions around what does fashion offer what, do, what does it mean what does it do and quite quickly we got into conversation and I sort of presented the idea of Centre for Sustainable Fashion to her thinking that she would kind of say yeah great we'll have a think about it and she turned around and said try it, off you go. And so, yeah, it was set up. Right from the beginning, I had the idea that it needed to do those three things simultaneously, to change education and have new kinds of courses, to work with current businesses to really understand how we can make change now as well as in the future, and also to develop it as a discipline, to actually look at it from a research perspective, to create publications that really explore what this new area of of study is. I was going to ask you, 10 years on, can you tell us a little bit how it's evolved and particularly with how you've worked with industry? Because I know there's loads of examples, but perhaps yeah. pick a couple. Yeah. Okay. How it's evolved. Um, on the one hand, it's really exciting to see that there's huge traction. There are a lot more universities interested in thinking about it from an education perspective. There's, we've gone from... Do they reach out to you and say, Can we, we're thinking of doing a similar thing? Yes. Great. Yeah. 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 That's changing the world. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And as you uh, will have seen with, with businesses, the same with education, same with everything, that sustainability is a connector because it's nothing that one organisation can see as their sort of point of distinction and no one organisation can do it by themselves. Yes. I mean, it's so, so funny that because, of course, it's so obvious. And yet I think people often think, here I am battling alone, trying to change the world. No, <laughs> no, we can will. change your world. Yeah. But if and you want to change the world, world you've got to get some friends. Got, yeah, got to get some friends. <laughs> and also you've got to realise what you bring that's different from what other people bring and that, you know, overall the patchwork becomes a new kind of cloth. <laughs> so what were. are some examples of how you've worked with industry? So working with industry, we've gone from a few people being a little bit interested or being sort of radically interested quite often at small scale. And when we first started, we worked with a lot of small businesses. Um, Michelle Loholder, whose work you may have seen in the V&A. Um, you Christopher have actually. Rayburn. Oh, good. Christopher Rayburn's been on this podcast. Oh, great. He was also a radical pioneer because, you know, he's been doing this for 10 years. Yeah, yeah. So he talks about being inspired by here. Oh, good, good. Well, and it's a two-way thing. You know, we all learn from each other. So I think, yeah, we really did start with working with a lot of small businesses. And then actually we sort of worked at the extremes. So we worked with a lot of small businesses because they were led by designers that really understood that what they were putting out into the world was something that represented them. And when it's a small business, you see that very directly. So they really wanted to think about what they were saying about themselves. But then also the really big guys, because the really big guys understand the critical issues as well because of the scale they're working at. So we worked with Nike uh, quite early on and looked at how their design team could think differently about sustainability and develop something called the Making App with them that was about looking at relative material choices. So if you, you go onto the app and you, uh, you try a particular material, then you try another one and you see which is better or worse. Because if you have just the numbers, it doesn't really tell you anything. You so kind of have to have the comparative. That's a tool for designers yeah. in Nike. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's open source. You, I mean, it's open source as long as you've got um, <laughs> iTunes. It's on, Amazing. Yeah, yeah. So, and a lot of our students uh, use that. So, so we started off like that, and we also started off really thinking about working with sustainability teams in some of these businesses. But what, you know, all of us, our background is design. So what we really saw as the kind of catalyst for change is what the designers do. Um, so more and more now we are working directly with designers. And we continue to work with a lot of the big guys because the challenges and problems that they have are quite different from the challenges that small businesses have. And I think um, you know, we take a systems thinking approach. We have to work across all scales. And we do get berated sometimes. How come you're working with those guys that are sort of seen as part of the problem because well, I get told off for interviewing them but not by every, you know by sometimes yeah and worry should I be can I put out this interview with H&M are you going to all hate it but the point is we don't check like we said community yeah. you can't change with on your own and no. the big ones are making the biggest impact yeah and also when you're speaking to somebody face to face working in a business nobody sets out to do rubbish nobody wants to do harm and nobody wants to put out a bad product so we have different constraints and different opportunities mm. according to mm. where we are working. And I think that, that that thing of looking at the sort of archetype of design and the designer in those different contexts is really important. Do you want to talk a little bit more about how designers can make a difference? Because I think lots of listeners are designers or students who are wanting to become designers. And it's interesting to see the way that we're, I think, gradually, but here obviously... Mm 
swiftly, shifting towards this idea that designers need to consider more than making the thing beautiful from the beginning, but also yeah. the whole life cycle of the garment, like what's going to happen to it after that person has used it for the first time. Mm. I mean, I think it's a really exciting time to be a designer. Um, when I trained, I did only think about you know what the idea was, what the concept was, the materials I was going to use, silhouettes, getting it through toile, and then getting it to the sales samples, and that was it. Whereas now a designer really can consider not only the ideas around the manifestation of a 3D piece, but also how that is going to be presented in the world, what kind of business models it's going to work with, whether it's going to be something that has two or three lives, whether it's going to be something that actually is leased out and hired and repaired. So I think it's incredibly exciting for a designer um, setting out. I mean, it, it's quite, it can be overwhelming. And I was just about to say, <laughs> not wanting to be a downer, but then I was thinking when you consider the speed of the industry and the pressure that's already on designers, for example... I always use the same example, but I find yeah. it bizarre that if you read Dana Thomas's book about gods and monsters, yeah. which people hate, but I loved it, yeah. Galliano was designing 32 collections a year. I mean, so much pressure. If you then add in the pressure of now you can't even stop with yeah. the garment. Yeah. No, it's, I, mean, I mean, we have to look at it as an opportunity, but what, what do you think about that pressure and the overwhelm? Um, I think the value of creativity has been really diminished and the role of the designer and how, you know, the designer on the one hand, uh, in, especially in some of these big businesses, is put on a pedestal. On the other hand, they are completely constrained. I mean, you know, design is about imagining something different from what exists. And how can you do that when the pace is just relentless? I think it's, it's a huge problem, a really major one that in the end will be the make or break of, of the industry. Because unless you can come up with ideas that are exciting and relevant then fashion <laughs> doesn't exist i've worked in magazines for years and i have worked previously in desk bound desk bound that makes sound really bad <laughs> they were great jobs but office-based yeah. desk bound i was a features director of vogue once for example but in those jobs when we were working on monthly print mm. magazines we mm. had quite a lot of time to consider and think through ideas, rework them, talk about them, go away, come back and make the best story that we could get. Online, which I've also done at Marie Claire, mm. is absolutely bonkers. I hated it. Yeah. It was like, you got 20 minutes, gone. It's like, but I want to do a good job. How am I going to do a good job in 20 minutes? It's going to be probably riddled with mistakes and certainly not stylish. Yeah. How? Yeah. It's, and then the next one. Oh, one o'clock, get this story. Watch that show online, don't go. Write about it and get it up by one, please. What? But I think it's starting to change, though. And I think, you know, we've let technology tell us how to live. And actually, we need to be able to find ways for it to help us. And I think maybe we are, we've been going through this transition phase at the moment. We're still going through it. But looking at how some of our students respond to some of the briefs that they're set and thinking about and, and you know, you, you do go online, actually, um, or even in, in conversations and speak to them and the overwhelm and the kind of pace is something that they're starting mm -hmm. to really put their hand up against. And a lot of projects come through that are responding to this idea of just stop bombarding me. Stop expecting me to be a passive receiver of something. I actually want to be more active. I want to be involved in something. To be involved in something takes more time. It takes more effort. 
So I do believe in the ingenuity of, of human nature that at some point, however much the technology allows us to just keep speeding things up, um, we, we, might will, choose we, will, we will choose not to. We'll choose to switch off. We'll choose to go in another direction and maybe rebalance things. You know, technology has brought us amazing things, but I think we have to find a way for it to be appropriate to well-being. I mean, look at issues to do with mental health. We see it with our students. The issues of well-being are something that we have to talk about now in a very different way from 10 years ago. And and then that has got to be addressed. Um, mm. And we do see some technology companies that are starting to take responsibility for that as well. Mm. So, Is the fashion system broken? <laughs> so yes, it is. It is. And in some ways, we hear people talking about making it even faster through technology, through AI, etc., etc. And maybe it will, it will actually crash and burn in some ways. So I think that it, it has lots of different cycles that happen simultaneously. I think the overwhelming economic model that fashion, that a lot of the fashion industry is part of is what's broken. Because ultimately, everything comes from nature. Nature is our capital. And yet the dollar sign of making more money and growth and infinite growth on a finite planet, as David Attenborough said, is only feasible if you're either mad or you, you're an economist. Um, <laughs> or you think it's only feasible. Or you're you... one of these twerps who says, let's go to another planet. But yes. Come on. Yes, let's, let's go and grow. We'll trash this one, but maybe we could find another one, I think, probably one day. Well, if anybody's watched Wally. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think that the idea of us being able to just keep using technology to fix things is a myth and I think myths unfortunately are quite dangerous because a lot of the rhetoric now around sustainability is based on this myth that we can find just in time a, a, yeah a solution to, that doesn't question our current economic model but the current economic model is at the base of the problem just in time you know the trope of an action film so <laughs> it's something my husband hates when he watches anything on the telly you know it's like stupid plot stupid plot and then at the last minute just in time no. something something comes along yeah. to save us well that isn't how life works is it we have to put the systems in place to save ourselves before it's just yeah. in time slash yeah. too late yeah yeah i hadn't heard about that but yes you're absolutely right once yeah. i've said it to you now you'll see oh, it. it's, so, it's so annoying because it, <laughs> it's just how to get away with a crap plot yeah the saviour swoops yeah. in superman or in this case in the environment we think richard branson will swoop in or yeah. bill gates will swoop yeah. in and yeah. say actually i found a machine that takes all of the carbon out of the atmosphere no it's yeah it's not gonna happen <laughs> that wasn't a question that was a rant <laughs> i do have a question so given that and obviously it's a big question but just in your opinion if the fashion system is broken or if the context within which it operates is on the brink of broken mm. what's your vision for a better system I think that we need to stop and think about the things we really care about. And you know, going to art school is, is part of that. You, your ideas of thinking about creating something do have to involve a really critical consideration of, of what you're doing, how and why. And for us, with the curriculum that we've developed, we've got these two areas that sort of inter, intertwine. One we kind of call uh, values-led so it's about really exploring whether it's your cultures, whether it's your belief system, whether it's your kind of questioning of, of what we're doing in the world, um, which is quite a deeply philosophical kind of route to take. But actually looking at issues to do with climate change, it's a, it's a deep philosophical question about who we are and what we're doing. Because if we're messing up our only home, then, you know, what, what is humanity? So that's quite 
deep on, on one level um, and it's a sort of existential crisis that we're, we're in and you look at belief systems around the world and how they're being challenged and changing and ideas of identity and hybrid identities and different kinds of identities it's really interesting that there's there's now I think a whole new movement and sort of new belief systems are starting to, to emerge it'll take a while but it, that really is happening and on the other hand we really do have to have the knowledge we do have to understand issues to do with planetary boundaries is we have to know what you know the science base of, of soccer and resilience center for example what those things mean because um, you have to have both the knowledge base and the values um, ideas kind of intertwining to be able to really consider how you could do things differently and I think that the more that we're able to do that and we see it you know the me too movement we see it in various different ways in which cultures are starting to kind of really come together and, and find common ground I mean the women's March brought people together. They're looking at climate change. They were looking at gender issues. They were looking at, at financial inequality issues, and all realizing that we're all part of a new belief system that is about mm. equality. You know, we're all born in equal, and yet our constructs of society break that down. I just so, wrote a book about so this. So now I'm ranting. That was my, what my book is. <laughs> it's coming out in October. I can oh. plug my own book on my own podcast. Yeah, Fantastic. but that's I'm what it's about, the context of this idea of, I was starting from the premise that I think, I still think actually, although it didn't, it's not the whole framing of the book, but my idea was that we're seeing more push for cultural change than at any time since the 60s. Yeah, we really are. And, you know, the science behind issues to do with climate change has been there for a long time. It might be it's wavering. It's interesting that we, but the culture that we hasn't didn't been. think about it, though. It wasn't in men, of course, some scientists thought about it. But there was a spike in the 90s when it started to come through that people were saying, goodness, let's mm. take some action. Mm. And we just did nothing didn't for 20 yeah. years. Yeah, the culture did not match the science, which is why fashion is so important because... Fashion is about culture change. I went to see the extraordinary and very, very compelling exhibition at the V&A, Fashioned from Nature. You wrote an essay in the book that goes with it, and students from here contributed to that exhibition. Yes. Let's talk a bit about that. Yeah. Um, well, let's begin with the essay that you wrote, in which you raised the planetary boundaries from mm. the Stockholm Resilience Centre. Yeah. <laughs> I know what it's called. And I thought, crikey, who's going to raise that in a fashion context? Because... I haven't, but I've read it, but I thought we'll put that aside. Oh my goodness. So tell us about how you bring fashion into these very heavy conversations about what's happening with our planet. Look at mass extinctions, look at the threats to our water supplies, look at these massive problems that we're having with cutting down trees. How do you then bring that back to fashion or link it to fashion? fashion? I think you've got to take the, the big and the small simultaneously and fashion because it's something that we all recognize is a way of being able to make issues to do with climate change kind of human scale so what we did was we took five pieces that would be really quite familiar to anybody coming to the exhibition so a pair of jeans a tote bag a t-shirt a wrap, wrap dress. dress and a pair of sneakers and use those to sort of epitomize the, the familiarity of fashion. But then with each of those pieces, we explored actually what's inside those pieces. So we created small films, students worked on these ideas because they also wanted to find a way that they could speak to their friends. 
you know, because they're on a course that's talking about fashion and sustainability and it, it can get quite complex. And so all of us need to find ways in which we can actually, yeah, talk to our, our friends about what we're doing. So they used um, mediums that they use in their everyday life. So one of the groups looked at an Instagram feed and how they would actually use an Instagram feed to talk about issues to do with the cotton and polyester mix of a T-shirt and how that relates back to issues of uh, chemical use, how it looks at water stress, etc. So they used the imagery of, of Instagram to actually get across a message that is quite deep, but on the other hand, it's something that is then also very familiar. So I think that fashion does bring things down to human scale. And we did the same with each of the five objects, each from a slightly different perspective. So for the shoes, because they're leather, the students looked at ideas around oh, biodiversity loss. So, but they did it in a way that was real to them. You know, they were kind of uh, questioning the whole kind of advertising campaigns around running shoes and and the kind of ridiculousness of talking about something that's going to make you run faster and then juxtaposing that with this idea of these trees being cut down. So I think that uh, you can talk about the thorny issues on a kind of uh, scale that that is is quite personal uh, when you're talking about clothes. And that's one of the reasons why we're working with the... United Nations Convention for Climate Change because they want to look at how fashion can actually help the roadmap to the Paris Agreement because they see that on the one hand it's about the contents of fashion and issues to do with the materials, materials use, etc. On the other hand it's about culture and people actually making decisions about what they care about. Um, so if and it's such you a good conduit, fashion, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, God. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, go on. If the, yeah. UN... So if the UN think that fashion is powerful in thinking about getting to the Paris Agreement, then that's that's super exciting for us. And it also means that everybody can get involved because we all we all wear clothes, but we're also all designers. Design by definition is just about making something better than it was. So whether it's making your life better, whether it's making something fit better, whether it's making your house look better, you know, we all use design mm. in our in our heads and our lives. I mean, Nigel Cross talks about design as being an innate capability of being human. Uh, whether you professionalise that or not is up to you. And people say, I don't, I'm not a designer, I'm not a creative. But we, we all have when people that. say they're not creative. Everybody's creative. Absolutely. Someone's told you you're not, and that's not yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I often ask people to define what sustainability means to them or what ethics means to them. But I thought with you, I'd rather ask you what fashion means. Ah, yes. Well, fashion means being able to express yourself for yourself and with others. It connects you. We're a social species. You know, what we wear is part of how we have a conversation with somebody visually. You know, we're, we're visual beings. It gives us a sense of, of belonging and also a distinction. You know, we, we want to, we're all of us different from each other. We want to connect, but we also want to be distinctive. So, Well, sometimes fit in. Yeah, Stand absolutely. out, fit in, depends yes, who you are or how things. you're feeling. Yeah, it's, it's from the inside out and the outside in. So fashion is an amazing way in which we can actually express who we are. You know, like it, it's one of the distinctions of being human. You know, other animals can't do that in the same way as we can. So we're I, lucky. <laughs> I have to ask you where that came from in you. What were you like as a teenager? What was I like as a teenager? Um, well, I, I'm the age where I grew up when it was the clash and it was, yeah, all about being able to stand against what was going on. I was, you know, a Thatcher child. So, yeah, I... Def- well, we're back there. I was, yeah, I know we are back there. And worse, because it's sort of this insidious kind of way that we don't quite 
see it in the same way. It's not uh, one particular politician or one particular mantra. Mm. There's a sort of swathe of, of this kind of rhetoric. But yeah, so Were I... Were you drained pipe trousers woman? I was. I, I've always been somebody that's worn uh, things that are quite neat and I've always kind of had my uniform. So it, it was, you know, in those days, it was the Levi's 501s, it was a pair of Baswegians, and it was a, a kind of little white shirt. And yeah, I was, I was out there dancing to the clash and yeah, just generally rebelling against everything that society was kind of trying well, to throw at that. us. <laughs> yes, yeah. what's changed? Yeah, what's changed? Yeah, and in fact, I think you know we express ourselves through our clothes in different ways. We use it to sort of play around and 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 look at different ideas. But probably, if you look at pictures of me when I was fourteen and pictures of me now, I was more extreme then. Um, but uh, there's, yeah, there's definitely things that would still resonate. <laughs> if you looked at pictures of me when I was seventeen, you'd be like, really. Okay, I was a raver covered in metallic space fairy outfit. Oh, Why brilliant. am I telling you all this? You'll be like, really? <laughs> Absolutely. I used to have metallic, I used to have little jewels on my head like Bjork. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, and actually, you know, you're, you're using jewellery or, or how you change your hair and things like that uh, are the, probably some of the things that, that can, you can be most extreme Come with. Come on, I'm going to dress as a space fairy. That was the time. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It really was. Um, more importantly than dressing as a space fairy, a ridiculous change of gear. But coming back to Fashion from Nature and the, the essay that you wrote in the book, you quoted this terrible thing. And I actually didn't know the stat, which is that by 2030, we could be looking at more demand for water than we have supply. And yeah. you wrote, and I'm paraphrasing, but something like, do we want to use what water we have left to grow fashion or do yeah. we want to use it for drinking? Yeah. What kind of question is that? And it goes back to the, the, the fundamental question of, of equality. When people don't have fresh water and we are creating more clothes than we could ever use in our lifetimes anyway, that's when you realise that the fashion system is broken. I think that uh, we have to think differently about what we value. And if we value the clothes that we've already got, if we value water and the content of, of what we're wearing and understand the connection that we have between what we're wearing and where it comes from, we start to use things completely differently. I mean, the, I think the fundamental problem is that we've become disconnected we don't pick something up and actually feel and see and understand its value. Um, so I think that from a political perspective, we've got to stop using and destroying nature as, as we are doing so. I think that we do have the chance still to be able to do that. And I think it isn't just about recycling. I think there's, mm. there's a little bit of a mantra around the circular economy that... I was going to ask you about that. Do you think it can work? I think that it currently is being looked at from a very blinkered perspective. It's being looked at where the dollar sign is at the end of the of the road. Actually, if equality and living well in nature is the starting point and the and the intention, then I think that the conversation around valuing of resources um, has to be broader than the current way in which circularity is being discussed. We've all got different opportunities to question different things. I feel really blessed that working in a university, uh, but working with businesses and working with students, I can 
asked some of those really kind of critical questions about our, you know, the philosophical questions about what do we value, what do we care about, and what are our intentions, what are our belief systems. But at the same time, I can be working with a business where we're really thinking, okay, which materials can we use in, in next season's collection? For a lot of people that are right inside the system, it's quite difficult for them to be able to think beyond, okay, how can I change the material? Um, but I think that's also why there's such a critical role for universities to be able to stand up and not become too marketized themselves and not just be creating graduates that go into an existing system um, we've we've got to question that that system and it's you know the neoliberal kind of conditions of education and of business at the moment are something that cannot go unchallenged it's so difficult to bring those threads together to collaborate with and work with big business when they're still and are not going to change, motivated by shareholder requirements and profits and growth. How do you help students to think about how they can find a place in this world? Because it is so, it seems, even though we talk about all these great big ideas and I love them and I'm really excited about the idea of closing the loop on textiles, but as a student, the system exists if you want to get a job. What do you yeah, do? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I think there's a there's a huge duty of care as a, an educator to get that balance right. I mean, I've, I've seen it myself with students that start to become really interested in ideas around sustainability. They do start to question some of these underlying power issues that, that are at stake here, whether it's to do with the, the wealth inequality, whether it's to do with uh, particular uh, political powers and the directions they're going in, and then they have to go out and get a job. So we do have to find ways in which we can give agency to those students to be confident to go out to question things, but at the same time understand that there is a time scale issue and there is a, a industrial scale issue. And that's why, you know, I mean, we use systems thinking to okay. look at, you know, what can you change in a product? What can you change in the materials, you know, the materials of product, the actual product itself, the infrastructure around a product? the cultures and uh, ways in which people are, are working in society and then outside that the world view what it is we actually believe in and you've got to work out what you can change simultaneously at different levels um, and it may be that at one point you're only able to look at the materials but at the same time you're kind of thinking how can I also think about changing cultures so you may find that you can do more at one level whilst only a tiny bit at another level but you've got to think across that whole system and that's where you start to have different kinds of graduates coming out and now we've had 10 years and of then you've got a whole generation yes you've got a whole generation that are thinking differently and it is starting to happen some of our graduates from 10 years ago Claire Burkamp is head of sustainability at Stella McCartney and she's got a whole uh, team, and see, working with Stella, who's really uh, passionate about thinking about the ideas of sustainability, but also you know, openly says that you know she's learning from Claire, Claire's learning from her. Another of our graduates is at McQueen. Different circumstances, but again, what's her name? Sarah Dixon. I met her. Oh, okay, okay. So that's just two examples. Mm. Other graduates have become PhD students and are teaching, etc. But it's it's starting to really shift the um, the overall kind of mindset of what it is to be working in fashion quite frequently people will say to me but you work at a magazine do you face that you know you're dealing with big business you're very candid about questioning whether or not our current rate of consuming or the consumerist model is sustainable yeah do people say to you come on stop it we're trying to sell clothes here 
That's a really great question. And interestingly, the response is always, we need you to keep saying those things because we kind of know that's the case, but we can't necessarily say it ourselves. And also, we can't change as quickly as you, you know, we need you to help change. Because ultimately, if all citizens decided that they weren't going to buy certain things or if they were going to behave differently, that shifts business. Business responds to as well as shapes the conditions of, of the industry. And so far, I haven't had anybody really tell me to, tell me to shut up and go away. <laughs> In fact, sometimes I've, I've, I've been part of public scenarios uh, where there's been um, businesses that we work with, businesses in the room. And I've said to them beforehand, you know, you know I'm, I'm just going to speak my mind here. I'm speaking, I know I work with you, but I, I'm not necessarily going to say things that are part of what your sort of resonates with your strategy. And I've only ever had a positive response that's, well, that's why we need you here because mm. we don't just need people who are going to say, be yes men and say that what, what we're doing is enough. I mean, sometimes it's difficult to be able to do that because of the, of the context and you don't want to call people out. And I think we have to be careful not to call a one particular business out. Definitely. But on the other hand, um, I mean, that's why we've, we've been involved with the Youth Fashion Summit for so long because, you know, in Copenhagen, as you know, amazing set of people talking about things they're doing, but there needs to be more critical analysis of actually what the intention is behind some of those. Weren't they good, those students? So good. <laughs> Three of them amazing, from Australia. Amazing. They only meet for three days. They come from all around the world. And, I mean, we've been doing it since 2009 with, with the guys from Global Fashion Agenda and from with Kia from, from Denmark. And every single year you get people who are really keen to explore the questions with each other. They, they never, you know, they may not agree with each other, but there's, there's never a kind of hissy fit. They're there for three days working really intensely and there's more kind of collaboration and camaraderie and connection between those kids than you ever see anywhere. The energy is amazing. Amazing. It is important for us to remember that fashion isn't just about selling clothes. Fashion isn't just commerce. And in fact, one of our researchers, uh, Kate Fletcher's work around craft of use and looking at the narrative of all the interactions of fashion that are not about commercial transaction. So I think that those questions around what fashion is beyond consumerism are really important to foreground because we only hear the narrative of buying things and fashion is about more stuff or new or whatever and it isn't the only aspect of fashion and I think that if we get that balance better and what you're doing is obviously part of that which is brilliant and there are more and more people talking about ideas of, of identity that aren't just about sustainable consumerism it's just being who we are mm. um, but then absolutely it's a huge industry it's an amazing industry mainly women lots of people that are small businesses that can set out from from scratch and we do need to find ways for those businesses to be able to continue to thrive there's lots of ways of being able to do that there's not just one way at the moment a lot of those businesses get pushed out because it's all about speed and price Fashion hasn't always been only about speed and price. It's been about distinction. It's been about mm. making things that are beautiful. We all want, we all always want clothes. And it's such a, an important part of being human. So there will always be an opportunity for it to be a business. 
Um, so food, clothes, shelter, the three things that we all need. Um, so hopefully that's not going to go away anytime soon. So we've just got to turn the opportunities into things that are about being able to express ourselves, find our sense of identity that is not about inequality and is not about ravaging nature. Absolutely. Do you want to sing a bar of London Calling? <laughs> you wouldn't want me to. <laughs> Go on. Thank you, Dylan Williams. <laughs> Thanks so much, Claire. It's such a pleasure. London calling to the faraway towns Now war is declared and battle come down London calling to the underworld Come out of the cupboard, you boys and girls London calling, now don't look to us Phony Beatlemania is putting the task London calling, see we ain't got no swing Except for the rain and the truncheon thing The ice is